A warning before we begin. Today's episode features discussion of homicide and sexual assault. Caution is advised, especially for listeners under 13. With famous disappearances, media coverage tends to focus on the person at the core of the story, the one who went missing, which is a good thing. Centering victims is exactly what I advocate for, but some disappearances are more complicated than they seem. There can be a ripple effect that goes unnoticed at first. When one person goes missing, countless others can be affected even an entire country. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a young woman who went missing during a senior class trip to Aruba. Her disappearance dominated American news in the summer and fall of 2005 and continues to make headlines to this day. But she's never received justice. Her name is Natalie Holloway. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Natalie Holloway's story has never suffered from a lack of media coverage. Chances are you've seen her high school yearbook photo. It was the one media outlets used whenever they spoke her name. In it, she has long blonde hair parted to one side and a bright smile. She's wearing a black off-the-shoulder top and a pearl necklace. If you haven't heard of Natalie, you won't be lost. I'm gonna cover every detail I can. But since her disappearance has been discussed so extensively in the past, I'm also going to expand our scope to talk about the many other people affected by this case. But first, let's start at the beginning. 
It's May 2005, and Natalie Holloway is an 18-year-old girl from Mountain Brook, Alabama, a wealthy suburb of Birmingham. She works part-time at a farmer's market, volunteers at a local cancer center, and attends a Bible study group with her friends. She's always been a high performer. She's about to graduate high school with straight A's and has been offered an amazing scholarship to the University of Alabama. It'll cover her undergraduate studies and four years of medical school as well. It's a huge accomplishment, one she should be proud of. And Natalie wants to celebrate, which is why as her senior class plans a trip to Aruba, she asks her parents if she can go. Natalie's mother Beth and her stepfather Jug are on board. After all their daughter's hard work, they think she deserves a vacation with her friends. Plus, Aruba is said to be one of the safest islands in the Caribbean. Their economy runs on tourism. There's plenty of hotels and restaurants that cater to Americans. But when Natalie checks with her father, Dave, he's hesitant. There's going to be over 120 students on the trip and only seven chaperones. Regardless of the island's reputation, he's worried about supervision. Her dad voices these concerns, but Natalie's 18 now, an adult. Dave trusts his daughter to make the right decisions, so he says as much. He hands her a stack of graduation money to spend however she likes, and Natalie immediately puts the money toward her trip. On May 26th, she and her classmates fly to Aranyastat, the Aruban capital. They check in to the Holiday Inn and head to the beach. Their Caribbean vacation begins. Now, it's important to note that communication on the island has its challenges. It's 2005. Wi-Fi and cell phones are not what they are today. None of the students really have any service. Natalie brings her phone, but ends up leaving it in her hotel room the whole time. For safety, the chaperones apparently have face-to-face check-ins with everyone on the trip once a day. I don't know exactly what these check-ins consist of, but it seems like as long as the students say hello when they're supposed to, they can pretty much do whatever they want. Remember, they're adults. Young adults, but adults. They're 18, and in Aruba, that means they can drink alcohol, go to clubs, and gamble. Most of the students spend their days sipping cocktails and sunbathing on the beach. At night, they bar hop, dance at clubs, and play poker and dice. The vacation flies by. Before they know it, it's their fourth day, May 29th, the last full day of their trip. Sometime that evening, I'm not sure when, Natalie and three of her classmates gather around a poker table at the hotel's casino. Natalie doesn't play, she just watches, possibly because she's seen one of her friends gamble away all their remaining cash. But while she's at the table, a young man approaches. At over six feet tall, he's physically imposing and has a personality to match. Speaking with a Dutch accent, he introduces himself as Joran Vandersloot, a 19-year-old college student from the Netherlands. He says he's in Aruba on vacation and staying at the Holiday Inn. After some small talk, he sits down and starts playing poker with Natalie and her classmates, and he earns their trust pretty quickly. He helps Natalie's friend win back her money. Natalie and her friends tell Yoron that it's their last day on the island, 
They say they're gonna go to a downtown bar called Carlos and Charlie's later for one last hurrah. They invite him to come along. He says the bars are boring on Sundays, so he's not sure if he'll show. But he's just playing coy. Later that evening, he calls two of his friends for a ride, 21-year-old Deepak Kalpo and 18-year-old Satish Kalpo, their brothers. A little after midnight on May 30th, Deepak parks his gray Honda downtown, and the three friends walk into Carlos and Charlie's. They grab drinks at the bar, then meet up with Natalie and her friends. And here's where accounts start to diverge. Here's what we know for sure. Natalie, her roommates, and a number of other students drink, dance, and at one point, sing Sweet Home Alabama at the top of their lungs. Those details are consistent, but according to her friends, Natalie only had a few cocktails and never seems drunk. They see her talk to Joran Vandersloot. Some say they're flirting. Others say Joran tries his best to hit on her, but Natalie shoots him down. Joran, on the other hand, tells a very different story. He claims Natalie drinks to the point where she's extremely intoxicated. He says she dances on tables and at one point asks him to take a body shot off her stomach. While the details inside the club are murky, Carlos and Charlie's closes at 1 a.m. And when it does, people pour out onto the street and fight to hail taxis. In the chaos, Natalie gets separated from her friends. A classmate watches her walk away from the club with Yoran, Deepak, and Satish. They see Natalie get into the backseat of Deepak's Honda and watch the car drive away. Most of Natalie's friends, however, aren't aware she's left. They only realize she's not with them once they get back to the Holiday Inn. At least one of her friends stays in the lobby waiting for her to return. They have no way to get a hold of her. Natalie's cell phone is sitting in her hotel room with no service. By 5 a.m., she hasn't come back. Her friends go to sleep, hoping she'll return soon. But when they wake up three hours later at 8 a.m., Natalie's still not there. Asking around, her friends find out that no one on the trip or in the hotel has seen or heard from Natalie since she left Carlos and Charlie's the night before. Naturally, they're scared and a little frantic. Someone tells the chaperones what's going on and the severity of the situation sets in. A student is missing in a foreign country on their watch, and there's barely any time to look for Natalie. They're supposed to leave Aruba today. The plan was for everyone to meet in the lobby at 10 a.m., then head straight to the airport, but that obviously can't happen now. So one chaperone, a high school teacher named Paul Lilly, stays behind, while everyone else flies back to the States. The travel agent who planned the trip calls Natalie's mom to let her know what's going on. The agent relays everything she's been told, about the bar, the three young men, the car Natalie got into. As the words filter through the receiver, all Beth can think about is getting to Aruba to search for her daughter. When she hangs up the phone, she calls Natalie's stepfather and a few other friends in a panic. Luckily, one happens to own a private jet. So before long, they depart to the Caribbean to find Natalie. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. 
Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Around 10 p.m. on Monday, May 30th, 2005, Beth Holloway touches down in Oranjestad, Aruba. Her first stop is the Holiday Inn, where the chaperone Paul Lilly waits in the lobby. Paul looks grim. He tells Beth he's contacted hotel security, but they apparently haven't seen Natalie anywhere. He also spoke with some uniformed men that he thought were police, but learned they were only a part of the island's visibility team a group of security officials whose job is to patrol beaches. Paul says that when he finally did get in contact with law enforcement, they told him he couldn't file a report. According to the officials, in Aruba, an adult must be missing for at least 24 hours before reporting them missing. I've said this before. In the United States, there is no required waiting period before you can report someone missing. If you believe someone is missing or in danger, you can and should contact authorities. It's your right. But in Aruba, that's apparently not the case. The law does require you to wait 24 hours. It's incredibly frustrating. In Beth's case, it's been 22 hours since Natalie was last seen, meaning since Natalie left Carlos and Charlie's. And yet, because of the law, she needs to wait two hours before the police will help. She's basically on her own. But knowing every minute counts, Beth doesn't waste time. She takes matters into her own hands and asks the night manager at Natalie's hotel if they know anything about the young man her daughter was last seen with, Joran Vandersloot. Turns out, they know who he is, and they give Beth information that contradicts what she's been told. The manager says Joran isn't a 19-year-old tourist. He's a 17-year-old high school student and a local. He's lived on the island since he was a child. Joran's dad, Paulus Vandersloot, also works as a high-ranking attorney for the Aruban government. He's a frequent gambler himself, and he's known to bring his son to play poker at the casinos. Even though he's underage, there's an unspoken agreement around the island that Yoran's allowed inside. He can also drink, despite being underage. In other words, Yoran's used to breaking the rules and getting away with it. The hotel manager also tells Beth that Yoran has a reputation for hooking up with young women vacationing in Aruba, which is terrifying to hear. Yoran was the last person seen with Natalie, and now Beth's learning that he lied about who he was. She can't help but wonder why and what else he might be hiding. Desperate for more information, Beth and her husband Jug ask other locals for more information about Yoran. They even pay someone to give them the Vandersloat's home address. They want to visit the home on their own. Beth's worried it might be dangerous if they do but luckily they don't have to. By the time they get the address, the 24 hours that needed to pass before reporting Natalie missing are up. The police can officially get involved. 
Beth and her husband arrive at the closest station around 1 a.m. on May 31st. Then it takes another 30 minutes to convince officers to come with them to pay the Vandersloat's house a visit. But they do. Backed by law enforcement, Beth and her husband show up around 2 a.m. Only Yoron's not there. He's apparently out gambling with Deepak and Satish. His dad, Paulus, needs to call and tell him to come home. Yoran, Deepak, and Satish arrive back at the house around three in the morning. Natalie's parents and a team of officers are waiting. Almost immediately, Beth confronts Yoran with a photo of Natalie. All three young men admit that they were with her last night. Then, standing side by side, they tell Beth and the police the same story. According to them, they left Carlos and Charlie's with Natalie a little after 1 a.m. They got in Deepak's car. Satish sat in the front, and Yoran and Natalie sat in the back, where they, quote, fooled around. They claim Natalie was extremely drunk and kept falling asleep. Eventually, they took her back to the Holiday Inn. She got out of the car, fell, and hit her head. Then, two security guards helped her inside. They don't know what happened to Natalie after that. Now, Beth doesn't believe their version of events. She knows how responsible her daughter is. Even if Natalie wanted to let loose on vacation, Beth doesn't believe her daughter would get that drunk. Nor would Natalie willingly get into a car late at night with men she'd just met. But it doesn't seem to matter to investigators that Yoran had lied to Natalie and her friends. They take the young men's stories at face value. After leaving the Vandersloat's home, authorities turn their attention to the two hotel security guards. Over the next few days, Natalie's disappearance dominates American headlines. But it's not just Americans paying attention. Locals in Aruba share her family's heartbreak. Many volunteer their time to help in the search efforts. Eventually, teams from Texas arrive, as do the Dutch Marines, and a few F-16 fighter planes from the Netherlands but no evidence surfaces. Then, five days after Natalie was last seen, on Saturday, June 4th, Beth's initial instincts are proven right. The story Yoron, Deepak, and Satish told the police was a lie. An employee at the Holiday Inn provides Beth with security footage from the night Natalie disappeared. It clearly shows Natalie never returned to the hotel. Now, I have to assume this footage gets turned over to the police. But if it does, authorities either ignore the evidence or don't think it's foolproof. Because two days later, based only on Yoron and his friend's words, police arrest the two hotel security guards, Abraham Jones and Antonius Mickey John. See, there's another big difference in law enforcement procedures in Aruba and the United States. In Aruba, suspects can be jailed for up to 116 days without any formal charges pressed against them. Abraham and Mickey are put behind bars under the suspicion of kidnapping with intent to commit murder. This is alarming for two reasons. First, there's no indication that Natalie's dead. And second, there's supposedly security footage that proves they're innocent. It doesn't make sense. But the police spend the next three days interrogating the two guards before they conclude what basically everyone has been saying up to this point. Yoron, Deepak, and Satish were the last ones with Natalie. 
they lied to intentionally cast suspicion elsewhere. After three wasted days on June 9th, the hotel guards are finally released from prison and investigators arrest Yoron, Deepak, and Satish. Like the guards, the boys aren't charged with any official crime, but they stay locked up for the next several weeks while officials sweep their homes and impound Deepak's car. The gray Honda Natalie's classmate saw her getting into that night. It's a step in the right direction for the investigation, but in the eyes of so many, especially Natalie's family, it's all happening way too late. It's been 10 days since Natalie was last seen. Nobody knows where she is. And as Beth Holloway says, the delay has given Yoron, Deepak, and Satish, quote, 10 days to lawyer up, 10 days to corroborate their stories, and 10 days to clean up their mess. So it's maybe unsurprising that investigators don't find evidence in Deepak's car that can incriminate the three young men. But after they're taken into custody, Yoron, Deepak, and Satish are questioned for a second time, this time separately. Each one admits that they lied earlier about dropping Natalie off at the hotel. That didn't happen. And presumably, the police know that at this point. So now they each launch into a new version of events. And at first, their stories line up. According to Deepak and Satish, their role that night was simple. They dropped Yoron and Natalie off at a beach by the Marriott Hotel, which is less than a mile from the Holiday Inn. They assumed Yoron would make sure Natalie got home safe, that he'd walk her back to her hotel when she wanted to go home. So after dropping them off by the shore, they drove home. They apparently didn't know what happened to Natalie after that. Yoron tells a slightly different story. He says that Deepak and Satish dropped him and Natalie off at the beach and left. He says he walked with Natalie along the shore. They stopped somewhere, laid in the sand for a bit, made out, and at some point, Natalie drunkenly fell asleep. But Yoron claims when this happened, he called Deepak, who picked him up from the beach around 3 a.m. He left Natalie asleep. He doesn't know what happened after that. When police tell Deepak and Satish about Yoron's claims, they refuse to corroborate his statement. They both maintain that neither one of them returned to the beach. And ultimately, investigators believe the Kalpo brothers, not Yoron, because when they search Deepak's house, they find time-stamped messages Deepak had sent from his home computer that night around 3 a.m., the time Yoron claimed Deepak was picking him up from the beach. Obviously, Deepak couldn't have been in two places at once, so investigators believe they've caught Yoron in another lie. And when they confront him about it, he changes his story again. Yoron now says he was mistaken. It was actually Satish who picked him up from the beach. Of course, for everyone working this case, it's hard to believe anything Yoron says at this point. Not to mention, Deepak swears Satish was asleep at 3 a.m. He couldn't have picked Yoron up. The Kalpo brothers later tell officials that they initially lied about what happened that night to protect Yoron. According to them, they knew he had done something wrong, something bad. But unfortunately, whether they know more or not, they don't provide the investigators with any specific details. As officials continue to look into Natalie's case, 
the timeline gets even more confusing. They learn it's possible that Joran and Natalie never even went to the beach that night. They speak to fishermen who were by the water in the early hours of the morning near the Marriott. The fishermen tell police that they never saw Joran or Natalie walking along the shore. Joran tells police the fishermen must be mistaken. Now, as we move along, I'm going to fast forward past some parts of the investigation that some might expect me to bring up. See, so much of Natalie's case revolves around Yoron and his different accounts of that night, but there's no need to perpetuate his lies or detail every contradicting statement he makes or discuss his performative television interviews. What you need to know is Yoron behaves like the investigation is a game. His words send police on wild goose chases as they try to figure out what, if anything, he's telling them might be true wasting valuable time and resources that could otherwise be poured into finding Natalie. And I find it hard to imagine that it's not intentional. On July 4th, about five weeks after Natalie disappeared, police release Deepak and Satish Kalpo from jail. The decision sparks mixed emotions. Natalie's parents are devastated. They feel like Deepak and Satish are complicit in their daughter's disappearance. They at least lied to police about what happened initially and obscured the investigation. To them, it feels like the Aruban authorities are letting the Kalpo brothers off too easily. And they say as much on national television. I haven't talked much about the media's role in this case yet, but by this point, Natalie's name and face is everywhere. What happened to her is every parent's worst nightmare. The coverage is so extensive that Beth is doing up to 12 interviews a day. And in one television appearance made after the Kalpo brothers' release, she calls Deepak and Satish criminals. And Arubans don't take kindly to this. As I mentioned earlier, in the weeks following Natalie's disappearance, Islanders have volunteered their time to help look for Natalie. They've offered their support, shared in the Holloway's heartbreak, and pitched in however they could. Law enforcement officials are still working to solve the case. Deepak and Satish are locals, two of their own, underage boys who may have lied, but have since come clean and have had their names cleared by police. So for many Arubans, Beth's words hurt and are even damaging. Intentionally or not, the rhetoric she uses feeds into an already existing narrative that Aruba is not a safe place to visit. And for an island whose economy relies on tourism, her words, which are being amplified around the globe, have power. So practically on a dime, public opinion in Aruba turns against Natalie's family and against their friends, the American volunteers, and all the reporters who have flocked to the island. During one press conference, one Aruban woman gets shoved by a cameraman and says that they've all, quote, overstayed their welcome. As tensions rise, Natalie's family leaves Aruba and flies back to the States. Less than two months since Natalie's disappearance, the media coverage surrounding her case has taken on a life of its own. And before the summer is over, the situation escalates even further. Beth books a spot on the popular daytime talk show, Dr. Phil. 
And during the broadcast, Dr. Phil suggests that to apply pressure on Aruba's government to find Natalie, Americans should boycott Aruba. The summer after Natalie Holloway goes missing, talk show host Dr. Phil calls for an American boycott of Aruba, and the effects are immediate. American tourism drops by 7%, which may not sound like a lot, but it is. Tourism accounts for around 85% of Aruba's economy, and Americans make up nearly three quarters of all incoming visitors. So the impact is huge. Local businesses suffer. Livelihoods are threatened. The boycott drives a wedge between Aruba and the United States. And amidst heightened tensions, a number of Aruban locals actually come out in defense of Joran Vandersloot. They say there's no proof he did anything wrong. But while authorities have yet to find any concrete evidence against Joran, their circumstantial evidence keeps growing. At some point, a young woman speaks with police and tells them Joran once sexually assaulted her while she was drunk. Her statement starts a waterfall effect. At least three more girls come forward accusing Joran of date rape, one of whom is just 12 years old. In his book about Natalie's disappearance, Dave says he believes Joran drugged his daughter, possibly with the help of Deepak and Satish. Based on a witness description of Natalie's behavior that night at Carlos and Charlie's, an investigator apparently tells Dave that she might have been given GHB. GHB is a central nervous system depressant that causes feelings of euphoria, but can also cause people to pass out or fall into comas. Notably, the one detail Euron never changed in his many different retellings was that Natalie kept falling asleep that night. And yet, by September 2005, the Aruban police say they don't have enough evidence to officially charge Euron with any crime. Nothing related to Natalie's disappearance or any of the multiple accusations of sexual assault against him. So, on September 3rd, a little over three months after Natalie's disappearance, Euron is released from prison. But there may be a reason officials can't find any evidence. Remember how Yoran's father, Paulus, is a high-powered government attorney? Well, apparently, after Natalie disappeared, he gave Yoran, Deepak, and Satish some legal advice. That advice was, if there's no body, there's no case. Not if you tell the truth, there will be no issues. If there's no body, there's no case. At worst, it suggests he might have helped them get rid of evidence. At best, it reveals the faith he has in his son's innocence and the type of lawyer he is. After Aruban authorities confirm with Deepak that Yoran's father made this statement, they arrest him on suspicion of hiding evidence. Many believe he had the means and motive to protect his 17-year-old son, but eventually he's cleared, once again due to a lack of evidence. By the fall of 2005, Joran moves to the Netherlands and goes to college. For Natalie's family, his freedom must feel like the pinnacle of injustice. At the same time as Joran's starting classes in Europe, Natalie should be beginning her freshman year at the University of Alabama. The next three years pass without any movement in Natalie's case. 
but at some point, Yoran takes the games he's been playing to a disgusting new level. Feeling untouchable, he claims to know where Natalie's body is on multiple occasions, only to later backtrack on his statements. In 2008, a Dutch journalist even secretly records Yoran on tape saying he dumped Natalie's remains at sea, but no repercussions follow. He simply claims he was lying, and that seems to be enough. He goes to school. He parties. He gambles. He travels. He lives the life that Natalie can't. Then, in March 2010... Joran sends an email to Natalie's mother's lawyer. In the email, he says that he'll finally admit where Natalie is buried, if Beth pays him $250,000. Beth's lawyer, John Kelly, forwards the email to the FBI. Next, John makes a plan to meet Joran in Aruba, and he brings $10,000 with him. After receiving the money, Joran says that his father buried Natalie's body in the foundation of their house. Not long after, another $15,000 gets wired to the Netherlands. Then, once again, Joran announces he made the whole story up and continues on with his life. He even travels to play in a poker tournament in Peru, presumably with all the money he just extorted. On May 30th, 2010, Joran's in Peru when he meets a 21-year-old young woman named Stephanie Flores. Stephanie apparently wins some money in the poker tournament, so Joran invites her back to his room to celebrate. Then, he murders her, steals her belongings, and flees to Chile, five years to the day after Natalie disappeared. Eventually, Joran's caught, arrested, and charged. He pleads guilty, claiming that the psychological distress of being a suspect in Natalie's disappearance is what led to his violent behavior which, after his behavior up to this point, is a laughable excuse for murder. On January 12, 2012, Natalie's family has her officially declared dead. One day later, Joran sentenced to 28 years in a Peruvian prison. In 2038, Joran will be done serving his time in Peru. Upon his release, he'll be extradited to the United States where he'll stand trial but not for anything related to Natalie's death. For extorting Natalie's mother. It's something, but it's not nearly enough. Natalie's family deserves real answers, and at this point, it feels like Joran could provide them if he wanted to. As the last person to be with Natalie before she disappeared, as someone who's lied time and time again for his own benefit, as a convicted murderer but it's hard to have faith that Joran would ever act out of anyone's best interest beside his own. His actions have directly taken lives, and his silence has ruined so many more. At the beginning of this episode, I said I wanted to broaden our scope to talk about the many victims in this story. The entire island of Aruba has suffered because of Joran's silence. The damage caused by the American boycott of Aruba has taken a lot to repair. In 2006, public and private donors invested $230 million into Aruba's tourism economy, hoping to get the island's finances and reputation back on track. 
Today, Aruba's economy is in a better place, but the island hasn't forgotten Natalie Holloway and the mess Joran Vandersloot caused. And the role Joran's race plays in this story is not lost on me. Ever since Aruba was colonized by the Netherlands in 1636, there's been racial disparities on the island, and Joran clearly used existing implicit biases in his favor. As a white man with Dutch nationality from a wealthy family, he continually cast suspicion on men of color, like Abraham Jones and Mickey John, the two hotel security guards. They're both black Arubans. When Joran lied to police about their role in Natalie's disappearance, officials believed him, even without proof. Abraham and Mickey were dragged out of their beds in the middle of the night, handcuffed, and taken into police custody. They slept on slabs of concrete for a week, were denied necessary medications, and were subjected to grueling interrogations, all for a crime they were far removed from. Joran also kept implicating Deepak and Satish, both dark-skinned Rubens as well, and lying about the role they played. During one interrogation, he even told police that one of the Calpo brothers might've killed Natalie. Now, I'm not saying the Calpo brothers didn't do anything wrong, but Joran's willingness to use them as scapegoats, seemingly at all costs, is worth noting. Joran even weaponized race pretty directly in his early statements to police. He claimed Natalie made racist comments about Deepak and Satish on the night she disappeared. Deepak and Satish have denied this, saying that Natalie never made any disparaging comments about them. Joran was most likely just trying to sway public opinion against Natalie, against the victim. Like so many cases I've covered on this show, it feels like it took a dangerous man far too long to see the inside of a cell. And so many are left wondering why. What could have changed if Joran knew what accountability looked like earlier in his life? If there were consequences to any of his actions that broke the law? The underage drinking, the gambling, the alleged sexual assaults. What if his father told him to be honest? What if police searched the Vandersloat's home and Deepak's car earlier? What if the laws in Aruba allowed Beth to report her daughter missing, regardless of how long it had been? How different would this ending be for Natalie? For Stephanie? For any woman who's ever accused Joran of a crime? And for their families? Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 35 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to help bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, 
Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Disappearances was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.